I spoke with Robert Jones an embarrassingly long time ago, and now I'm finally getting around to editing and producing this episode. My intentions were originally to talk to a, a rancher and get multiple sides of this debate and produce this whole full-fledged animal ethics episode, and now I'm realizing that this is just not likely to happen anytime soon. So I'm going to go ahead and deliver the whole conversation for you. There's some great philosophy here, and I wanted to get this out in the world Maybe in the future there'll be a more fully produced episode, but for now I just want to release this, um, just this conversation about animal rights and welfare and how do we think about what to eat and how to decide where to get our protein and how to treat the animals around us. We also get a little bit into um, issues of animal captivity and animal testing and, and things like that. So a couple of quick notes before we get started. I'm leaving some curse words in, unbleeped. The content isn't likely to be something that you'd want your littles hearing anyway, so I'm just going to go ahead and mark the whole episode explicit. Uh, it's tough thinking about animal welfare in a world that treats particularly food animals so extremely poorly. And finally, there's a lot of discussion around animal rights and welfare that tends to involve comparison with particularly cognitively delayed human beings. This isn't inherently ableist in itself, but people like Peter Singer, whom we'll mention in the conversation, are pretty out-and-out -out ableist in their thinking and writing. Ableism is when we treat disability or ability as, as a dimension of moral significance in a way that it is not. This is similar to sexism, which treats sex or gender as a dimension of moral significance in situations where it is not, right? So sex and gender are not always irrelevant to moral or ethical questions, right? For, for instance, who should be the one to give birth in a relationship has a lot to do with biological sex and reproductive organs and things like that. And those considerations might work against or, or cancel out considerations of, of fairness, or I guess I would say override considerations of fairness or justice uh, and things like that. Just as sex and gender are not always irrelevant, similarly, ability isn't always irrelevant to moral questions, right? A cognitively disabled person might not thrive in an advanced educational setting like college or graduate school. That's fine, and it presumably would be fine, at least minimally, to offer alternatives to college to people who won't thrive in that setting. We might even be able to say something stronger and um, think that that would still be morally okay, right? Uh, cognition is relevant to the question of what sorts of trainings and what sorts of activities people should participate in. Singer is guilty, though, of thinking that profound cognitive delays give someone a lower moral status overall, in that, in at least in certain triage cases where you have to choose whether to save one being or another, he thinks that you should choose the more cognitively able being. He equates the suffering of beings who suffer similarly, right? So he, he doesn't think that the suffering of cognitively delayed um, people uh, is is worth less in our moral considerations and moral deliberations. Um, but he rejects the ideas that all people are fundamentally equal. So he's not an egalitarian in that regard. And in that sense, he's being a fairly consistent utilitarian, I think. Some of these arguments are intentionally provocative, I think. Um, and I, th I think that's true because 
people feel quite strongly about the mass torture of animals, uh, which they should. That's understandable, right? And this lends itself to making arguments that might otherwise make us feel kind of queasy. And it's important to remember that the thrust of the arguments we discuss here, not to say all of the arguments in this area, but these arguments in particular, don't conclude that we should treat poorly or euthanize people with disabilities. To the contrary, right? They take as a given that we absolutely should not do this. It's absurd, we all agree, to think that people should be subject to unnecessary pain or restriction or suffering simply because they aren't as cognitively advanced as us or for any other reason. Sometimes it can seem like that's being called into question in these conversations, uh, but, but it's not. At least in this particular conversation, it's not. These issues are thorny and complicated, and I'm not totally sure how to navigate them in my own thinking yet. But I certainly think that these conversations are worth having and that these arguments are worth taking seriously. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Robert Jones, who's a professor of philosophy at CSU Dominguez Hills. We recorded this in Chico, actually, back when Robert was a professor at CSU Chico and coincidentally was my office mate for a time. Welcome to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. Maybe a good place to start would be to just think about what what is speciesism and like yeah. what's the charge of speciesism and like um why why is that something that we might want to avoid why yeah that kind of thing well i think the first thing to talk about with regard to speciesism the first thing to get clear on is the basic concept of speciesism and then from there you can expand the notion of speciesism itself so the basic concept was coined by a non-philosopher named Richard Ryder in the 19, in 1971, I believe, he published a pamphlet, and the claim was that there is a bias or a prejudice that's unjustified with regard to non-human animals. That human beings, we have this bias, we're not even aware of it, and that is that we assume the moral intellectual and all these other you know morally relevant characteristics these capacities we assume that we are superior to all non-humans and non-human animals in particular and and the the charge is that speciesism is akin to something like racism or sexism so the term was actually popularized by peter singer who's in some ways considered the quote father of the animal rights movement which is ironic because peter singer doesn't believe in rights he's a utilitarian (laughs) but putting that aside for a moment the colloquial term of animal rights when people think about organizations like PETA and people for the ethical treatment of animals think about animal rights activists that whole movement at least in the contemporary 
era, it started with the publication of Peter Singer's 1975 book, Animal Liberation. And in that book, he has a whole, he lays out his view of speciesism, speciesism being a prejudice or a bias in favor of members of one's own species against members of other species. And the bias is, the argument is that the bias is unjustified. And it's unjustified in the same way that racism and sexism are unjustified. And that lack of justification turns on the fact, according to people like Peter Singer and myself, it turns on the fact that species membership in and of itself is not a morally relevant property. So if you think about the case of race and you think, is someone's race, is that a a morally relevant capacity or characteristic that I need to consider when I'm making a moral decision? So for example, if someone applies to rent an apartment from me and you know, there's a sense in which giving housing to people or allowing people to rent from me, there, there's a certain moral aspect to that in that I, I'm in denying them, they may or may not have a place to live. So, so I could think, is it okay for me to deny someone housing if I'm renting an apartment based primarily or solely on race? And most people, most of us would say, no, that's racist. And so someone like Singer would say, well, what happens in that case is that the person who's renting the apartment is picking out a property or a characteristic that is not, in fact, morally relevant. What is relevant in that case is whether, say, the prospective tenant has been evicted a lot or have they, you know, maybe they've beaten up their past landlords, right? So these things, but when we think about renting, we think, no, we can't be biased or prejudiced and that's a clear case of racism. Or if I'm going to hire some to work, someone to work for me, and I say, well, it's a woman, so I'm going to pay that person less, that's a clear case of sexism. So what Singer wants to say is speciesism, the form of speciesism, follows those in the exact same way. For example, if I'm going to experiment, do a biomedical experiment that has to test a drug, and the experiment is harmful, and I'm going to require subjects for this experiment. I, can, I certainly can't, as we've learned from, say, the Tuskegee experiments in the, in the mid-20th century, I can't take only black soldiers and tell them that I'm doing an experiment on you know, syphilis and I'm really doing something else. And we, we look at that and say, that's clearly racist because the fact that the soldiers in the Tuskegee experiment were black is not a morally relevant property when it comes to consent with regard to biomedical experimentation. So Singer wants to say species membership is not relevant. It's not a morally relevant property. So if we're going to take, for example, chimpanzees and experiment, do a medical biomedical experiments on them, and we're choosing chimpanzees over humans because they're not human, because they're chimpanzees, right? Like most people, when you think about this, you're like, why are you experimenting on chimpanzees rather than humans? The most common answer is because they're chimpanzees. Like they're, they're not, we're not going to experiment on humans. So Singer wants to say that's a clear case of speciesism. That's a case where we're making a choice to do, you know, invasive, painful experiments. We're violating the interests of a particular, of particular beings based on an morally irrelevant property. And so 
what Singer wants to say is when we're making these kinds of decisions, when we're making decisions that involve moral treatment, we cannot use gender, we cannot use race, we cannot use ability, etc. but neither can we use species. So in that sense, species, speciesism is a notion that says if we can, if people could understand that they're speciesist, then we can overcome speciesism when we're in our daily lives and when it comes to say practical uh, in implementing our, 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 daily, our practices, our, our moral and societal practices, we shouldn't be racist, sexist, or speciesist. Now, so two, two more things I'll say. One is, we might say, well, then what is it that, like, how, what justifies using chimpanzees instead of humans to do invasive, painful biomedical experiments? And what Singer wants to say is, well, the first thing you have to do is you have to consider what makes chimpanzees and humans equal in some kind of moral sense. And what Singer wants to say is, well, it's not whether chimpanzees have the same intellect as humans, because there are plenty of humans who, you know, are by fortune or misfortune, however you want to characterize it, there are humans who are not, who do not have cognitive, what we would call normal or, or typical cognitive capacities. But we certainly don't experiment on them. So it can't be something about their intellectual abilities. And if you go down the line, you say, well, maybe, you know, chimpanzees don't have language but there are other humans for example like children and babies who you know, infants who don't have language or people who have lost their so so for every category that you pick out to justify the difference between the human species and the say chimpanzee species pantroglodyte which is the common chimpanzee that's used in experiments the main difference it turns out is just species membership and singer wants to go that's not justifiable because why and here's his here's his big punchline is because chimpanzees and humans are equal in that they're sentient they experience pain and pleasure and joy and suffering and so that's on singer's view sentience is like the great equalizer it's the great leveler and so once you have this kind of sentientism where you say if you're sentient then you're in the club of things that we have to consider now you've expanded this circle and your speciesism at least in theory, can like fall away, and you can say, "I'm no longer a racist. I'm no longer a, a sexist. I'm no longer an ableist. I'm no longer a speciesist." So that's that's one that's an important aspect of speciesism. But lately, in in the past few years, the notion of species speciesism has expanded. So, for example, a close, wonderful friend of mine and amazing philosopher John Sabonmatsu, he he wrote a very influential paper called The Animal of Bad Faith. And in that paper, he characterizes speciesism not as an individual belief, like not as a confused idea, but Sabon Matsu sees speciesism as a systemic, institutional level way of being. In, in fact, he, 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 he calls, he sees speciesism as a way of being human, as identifying human in, in opposition to the other. And so mm. at the, rather than thinking, oh, 
you know, racism is simply people who are confused about what race is and all we got to do is educate individual people and they won't be racist. You can look at racism and go, no, no, racism is this giant systemic embedded institution that is invisible and all these levels and it's not merely about beliefs. It, it, it has these actual effects that are institutional and Seven Matsu wants to say, he, he actually says that speciesism is it's a mode of production, you know, borrowing from Marx. It's a way of producing products. It's a way of producing not only products, but it's a way of producing what it is to mean, what it means to be human. And so in that sense, speciesism, when we, when we look at it that way, we, suddenly the scales fall from our eyes and we look all around and we look at the material, the, like the materiality of what it is to be human and we start to see that the suffering and death of billions of bodies of animals are, are they're the cost of humanity and civilization. And when we put it speciesism in that term, in those terms, then it becomes a larger, an existential problem, not merely a, a difference of belief, a deeply existential issue of who we are and what it means to be human. And so, yeah, so that. And there are other notions of speciesism, but those are the two that I think are, in my view, those are the most powerful. Rather than it just being speciesism, rather just than just being an attitude that we have, um, is it Matsu? Saban Matsu. Saban Matsu. Um, it gets wrapped up uh, so tightly with human activities that it becomes part of what it is to be a human, at least in this day and age. Um, and so the violence that's done to animals ends up get, becoming part of the concept of being a human. Exactly. Ex exactly right. Interesting. Okay. Um, that's an interesting idea. So um, it seems like in the, so there are certain cases that uh, actually Singer discusses at some points of um, they're sort of like triage cases. Like you're, you're in the jungle and they bring you a chimpanzee that's um, lost its arm and they bring you a human being with um, a uh, severe neurotrauma and the human being is is never going to get better um, cognitively right they're just they're g going to be in a persistent vegetative state um, whereas the chimpanzee is going to be a, a cognitively a normal chimpanzee um, if if you're able to save its life and things like that um, so Singer does think that we have ways of figuring out, at least in triage cases, who takes priority. Um, and I'm just curious on um, if you could like articulate that and then also what you think about that. Well, I think the first thing to see is that in, that, in those kinds of triage, ca triage cases is that how you approach that question is going to be influenced, if not determined, by your moral theory or your, your moral structure and famously as I mentioned earlier Singer is a utilitarian so when you have a triage case and you have to make a moral decision and the decision is there are two beings who are suffering and I am going to end the suffering of one I, I it's like this kind of you know, like the, it's like a trolley type problem I have no choice but to make a decision in which one being one sentient being will suffer or die and another one will suffer less due to my the results or the of my actions and my decision so when what singer wants to point out is 
In that case, where you have the neurologically or cognitively traumatized, permanently cognitively disabled or traumatized Homo sapien, and then you have a chimpanzee who can be rehabilitated after his injury is fixed to become a, quote, normal chimpanzee, then what he wants to say is you certainly have a decision, you do have a triage type decision to make, and you have to weigh in factors. So I have a limited number of resources. I can't save both of them. They can't both be saved. So I have to make this decision. Now, in your deliberation, when you're making that decision, a lot of things could come in, a lot of factors can come into play. Were the triage decision between the human being, the neurologically permanently injured or disabled human being, which just as a side note, there's an entire literature which is legitimate, which is a critique of even using this as an, as an example, as, as this example representing a kind of ableism. In other words, saying right. there's some, we're, we're trying to equate cognitively disabled disabled humans with animals so that's a whole literature and i'm happy to talk about that but Mm -hmm. in the case that you raised in the singarian triage case if you had the if you had two humans in that same triage case all things being equal the only difference was that they were of different say genders or races you couldn't say for example oh we save the white guy because he's white that's an obvious case of racism same with gender So what Singer wants to say is, no matter how you deliberate, you can't include species as a property or characteristic that enters into your moral deliberations, because then you're just being speciesist. So now what you have to do for Singer as a utilitarian is you have to say, which decision is going to, I mean, this is like a brute, you know, gross characterization. There's lots of things about preferences and stuff, but in general, what Singer is going to do as a utilitarian is going to say, which decision is going to bring about the greatest utility, the greatest benefit, and, 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 which, and that includes reducing harm. So in the triage case, Singer wants to say, as long as we're not speciesist, sexist, racist, able, as long as we make a decision based purely on this kind of utilitarian calculus, then however it lands is how it lands, and no one can yell, you know, racist, sexist, speciesist. As to how I feel about those triage cases, I think the triage ca- the triage cases are, as a thought experiment, are, for those who enjoy thought experiments, the triage, case- triage cases are philosophically interesting, as most thought experiments that are good are, because they push on and point to specific facets of the theory that raise challenges that bring out questions of consistency, right? So I think as a thought experiment, the triage cases of Peter Singer are interesting. And in that context, I agree with the conclusion. I, I think speciesism is pernicious and needs to be eliminated. However, as a kind of meta commentary, what I want to say is, <laughs> and this might be like psychologizing humans without, you know, being on the couch, but the way that someone like myself or Saban Matsu or Singer looks at the situation is, is imagine that you have an atrocity, a, a genocide of unprecedented proportions. And this is among human beings, let's say. And someone holds the view that all humans should be considered equally moral, morally equal, as Singer says, equal consideration 
of uh, moral status. And then someone raises a counterexample or they, try, they raise a question that says something like, well, suppose you have the person from this group and they have this thing and there's a person from that group and you know, what kind of choice are you gonna make? And what I wanna say is it's interesting as an experiment, but we're in the middle of a massive, a, a literal genocide of non-human animals. And so what I wanna say as an activist, because I consider myself a philosopher activist, what I wanna say as an activist is, I think the questions of triage cases are, is philosophically, they are philosophically interesting. But meanwhile, 110 billion non-human animals who are sentient are being slaughtered every year. That's about equal to the number of homo sapiens who have ever walked the planet. So the number of homo sapiens who have ever walked the planet is about 110, 110 billion in all of the history of the planet Earth. That's the same number of sentient beings that are slaughtered for food and clothing and hunting and all this stuff. So what I want to say is, you know, I totally dig it. I, I dig philosophy and I want to talk about counterexamples and I want to talk about thought experiments. I want to talk about triage cases. But I do want to point and say there's this atrocity going on and that's what I think the power of P Peter Singer's work is to actually try to change the world using philosophy as opposed to just keeping it with an ivory tower. So you could be a speciesist. Um, so a, I guess a one of the interesting things is you could be a speciesist. Like you're, you're, you're within your <laughs> sort of intellectual rights of saying like, actually I think species are a morally relevant category. And then the other interesting thing is you could be a speciesist and also think that everyone should be a vegan. You don't like those, those things don't have to stand or fall together. It's like being an anti-speciesist is one reason to be a vegan or a vegetarian. But you could be a speciesist and think species uh, membership is morally relevant, just not when it comes to something like pain and suffering mm -hmm. or... Um, a right to life or you know that those kinds of things so i was wondering if you might talk about it mm. a view that's sort of different in justification from your view but maybe on the ground is pretty similar so i think my question for the proposal of being a speciesist but agreeing that there are certain cases in which animals shouldn't be treated in certain ways i think what i want to question here's what, here's this this comes back this this question just it reappears and reappears, and that is, what are the properties or characteristics or capacities that are possessed by all and only human beings that make them morally superior to all non-human animals? What are the properties such that if you possess them, you're in the club, and if you don't, then you're not? And, you know, there's a lot of candidates. Like, one thing you might say is just, well, being human. Like, look, what, <laughs> what makes you morally special is that you're human. But, of course... That's begging the question. That's the, that's, the, that's the actual question we're asking. It's like, you can't answer that question with saying, because the question is, why is being human making, you know? <laughs> and then of course you, you can maybe take a theological perspective and say, human beings are the only creatures created in God's image and only mm -hmm. beings possessing the immortal souls and this has moral weight. And, mm -hmm. and now we're gonna get into a theological debate. And, and, that's, and that's an interesting debate, whether or not there is 
humans you know were made in god's image or whether evolutionary biology is true or if those are consistent and if whether we possess these indestructible immortal souls and so that's a debate that's a separate debate but mm-hmm. so but, but now let's just look at the reason most people give or at least the the reasons that are listed in the literature on animal rights which is let's just go through things like cognitive capacities uh the ability to, for speech the ability to if you're a Kantian, you'd think like the ability to generalize and make make universal, you know, mandate universal laws and and, and follow the categorical imperative, like all these things you can go through. Mm. And what I want to say to the speciesist is, I'm not quite clear why you're still a speciesist. So mm-hmm. what 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 are you basing that on? What is so if someone says no, I think species is morally relevant. I just have a question like, in what way is species morally relevant? Now you could say something like this. Look. If I see a little kid crossing the street and I see a squirrel crossing the street, it's it's perfectly morally acceptable to like swerve my trolley or my car, swerve and kill the squirrel <laughs> as opposed to the kid. And and like for all I know that kid could that that child could as far as all these capacity could lack all those capacities. So I'm making this decision without assessing fully as someone like Peter Singer would say, like, well, we have to, we have to like experiment and like look at the squirrel. We have to look at the child and wait, do this, this moral calculus. And so that's more of a heuristic. Like Hmm. if I'm driving my car and I swerve away to kill the child, to, to not hit the child and I kill the squirrel, I'm not guaranteed that I just made the right moral decision, but I'm using it as a heuristic. I'm saying, look, most humans probably have greater utility in the fact that there's people who will grieve and it's like, you can build that whole utilitarian argument, but that doesn't make me a speciesist. That just says I had to make a decision and I, I, I happen to base it on species, but the species membership is contingent. If the world were such that there were like super chimps, you know, <laughs> at, as, as, Jeff McMahon talks about this in his hmm. his masterful work, The Ethics of Killing. He talks about the super chimp. And there's some through, through genetic manipulation, we create this, I don't want to say race, but we create a, a class of beings who are chimpanzees, but are intellectually superior to today's chimpanzees. So now there's a bunch of animals, what we call non-human animals, who are walking around, who are you know doing things like going to Harvard and writing books. Now I'm driving my car down the street and there's a chimpanzee and a human. Now I'm in a different position because I don't know if that's a super chimp. So, so species membership falls away. Now I'm, now I'm left with making a decision based on other things. And now we're, now, now we have more of a, an analogy to like, I'm driving my car down the street and there's a white person and a black, and I have to make a decision right now. I'm like, this is really complicated. I might make a decision based on some biases that I don't really like about myself, but that doesn't make me, if it makes me racist, I can acknowledge that that's not something that I want to be. Likewise, if I make a decision in a, in a kind of triage case where I make a decision based on species, I could say, damn, I wish I didn't have to make that decision because I don't want to be a speciesist. So I want to pause on this point because I think it's fairly profound. I was tempted to say species are morally relevant categories, but that doesn't at all change the way that I think about policy or who deserves to suffer or something like that. So I was originally thinking something like Peter Singer's principle, which is equal consideration for equal interests, where we should weight equally the suffering of two beings who can suffer in the same way or to the same degree. If our suffering is different, then that might be morally relevant, but if our suffering is the same or in some respect an equivalent degree of suffering, 
then the rest of the facts about us are irrelevant. But then when I reflect on cases where we meet some especially humanoid alien, like they have uh, maybe in the, the Marvel movies or, or even non-humanoids, like they have in Adrian Tchaikovsky's children series, like Children of Time, Children of, of, of Ruin and, and things like that, right? So, so that's like sapient octopodes or uh, spiders or the like, right? When I reflect on those cases, I tend to actually think that species are irrelevant. There's no difference to me between an otherwise equally sapient and sentient spider and human. I similarly don't think that species is a particularly relevant category when I think about romantic relationships like that between Peter Quill and Gamora in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Of course, Gamora is just basically a green human with a little bit different bone structure, right? Uh, but we can easily imagine aliens that are more different than humans while still seeing nothing wrong with romantic and sexual relationships between them. We might wonder what reproduction would result in and the like, and, and those those might be interesting questions um, that, like, information we're going to need to to have before we understand um, and, and fully endorse these uh, kinds of relationships. There might be other differences that would make these relationships complicated and potentially complicated uh, to the point where it's impossible for them to, to really be ethically sound. But we wouldn't think that species membership by itself would block the possibility of ethical, romantic, and sexual entanglements. At least that's what I'm tempted to say. So we might care about the lifespan of a being, the way they experience pain and loss and grief, the way they form or don't form relationships with one another, their relationships to their own bodies, and so on. We should care about all these things when comparing the moral status of the death or suffering of an individual of a particular species. But it seems like perhaps the fact that species are such a good guide to these factors is what tricks us into thinking that species are what truly matters. back to the original question the speciesist who says yeah i'm a speciesist and i think species is morally relevant and i think it's okay and most you know maybe there are these cases where it's not okay to be a speciesist i still want to press and go like what are those reasons tell me tell me the reasons why you're a speciesist I, I'm, I'm just i'm fascinated i want to hear what the reasons are and i could say for my own in my own life as someone who grew up not giving a crap about animals that much except for my dog and cat and eating meat three times a day and just not caring at all in any way whatsoever about animal experimentation I remember when I was really I think I was a teenager I was walking down the street and someone handed me a pamphlet about ex animal experimentation and I just I remember this incident I just like threw it in the trash I was like this is ridiculous right and and so in my own experience I know what it, I know I have that experience of of sort of living in living in what I would say like living in either bad faith or denial or something <laughs> and then and then having this moment where I'm like oh okay now I, I see things much much more clearly now so in my particular case when I interrogated my own beliefs and I interrogated my own reasons for why I think that species is morally relevant 
I just came up empty-handed and I was like, wow, if I want to be consistent, if consistency is important to me, and as most philosophers, it is important, then I feel like I have to change my behavior and I have to do what I can in my lifetime to alter the practices and institutions that assume speciesism and assume that species membership is morally relevant. But I think, I don't know, you had another question. I think I forgot it. Yeah, um, no, that, that was really good. I, um, so I think I was thinking, it seems, seems like you could have, I guess like some people just straight up go all in for a really strong form of speciesism, but still say, but we still shouldn't be doing animal experimentation right. because A, because that doesn't, that's not good for humans. That would be like one way of saying it, is like this, it's not good for humans to be treating other living sentient beings as, as things. And so it's not good morally for us. It's like a moral cost to human beings or something like that. So you could come up with those sorts of justifications that are like full-blooded, really hardcore speciesist justifications, but still on the ground have the same sort of policies in mind of you know we, we we shouldn't be doing experimentation we really should all be at least vegetarian if not vegan and all of these things for really speciesist reasons right. and I, i'm just curious like if you could just think about that for right a so i think that in that case this so, so there's, there's there's actually a lot to say there so one thing is to say is look you and i mr speciesist you and me robert anti-speciesist we have different views about the nature of the moral status of these particular beings. But if we both looked at a list of practices, moral practices that humans take part in, and we just, we tick them off. We're like, should, should this be, is this morally correct? No, we just tick it off. We tick it off. And it turns out that, you know, every, for every, for every practice that we agree on, I say, well, because animals are sentient beings and they're subjects and they, you know, if, if I could, I, I could be a, an actual animal rights person like Tom Reagan. And so like animals have inherent value and they can, it's inviolable. And, and then the, the species can, can say, oh no, I'm only saying that because it's bad for humans, right? And this is more of a Kantian view. So Kant is going is to say, Kant famously says, the reason why it's, it's immoral to, to mistreat animals, he talks about mistreating horses and stuff, is because it has the tendency to make humans less moral. Right. So, you know, it's this classic case of like you, you see these like, you know, these homicidal like sociopaths. And they, when when they were children, they used to torture cats so like that. That's that's what you're what you're seeing there is a kind of anthropocentric view that says, look, human beings are the primary bearers of moral status. And when I consider behaviors or practices that are immoral, it's necessarily in relation to the interests of human beings. And so and so what I what I want to say is it, what that person wants to say is I don't see the animals as having the same intrinsic value if any as human beings. So human beings on the anthropocentric view they're going to hold this intrinsic value in the sense that humans are valuable in and of themselves as as Kant would say they are ends not means, right? They're in, ends in themselves. And on the, on the anthropocentric account you can see where you have to see animals value as instrumental in other words the instrumental value of the animal it's instrumental in relation to the value of the human and this goes with you know environmental ethics like you know is a redwood tree valuable well is it is it valuable because it's lumber or is it valuable because it has a, it, it creates a better environment for humans or is it valuable because it, it 
you know, it's aesthetically pleasing to humans, right? And then you have these, oh, you go down the, the rabbit hole with these like last man arguments and stuff. So what I want to say is in practical, here's what I want to say in practical category. If I'm, if I'm at a animal rights protest and my comrade, my fellow traveler is next to me and he or she is protesting for different reasons than me, but when we tick off the list, it's all exactly the same. My view is, okay, like we can have that discussion over coffee, but if we, if the practical implications of our views are that we're both, we both want to eliminate this institutional, this kind of injustice for different reasons, then I feel like, okay, well, let's join the same team. Like you're on my team, we're together. <laughs> so um, it's, I think, relatively clear um, upon reflection why you should avoid eating factory farmed meat. I, I think there there are really interesting arguments a, a, against eating factory farmed meat and things like that. I don't know if you've read. It's called Puppies, Pigs, and People, Alistair Norcross. It's a really good article, and it's I teach that article every yeah. semester. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I I do too. Um, and it's a really great article. But I actually think is a, a more philosophically interesting question is why can't you eat meat from like the Chico State Farm? You know, animals that you know were well treated in their life. You could even go to the farm and see how they live. Seems like they live a life relatively free from pain and suffering. Actually, probably a better life than many of these animals would live if they were wild. And they die a better death than they would die if they're in the wild. And then you eat their meat. So I'm curious, like, how do we think about that kind of case? Because I, I think it's one of the most interesting cases mm -hmm. to think about. Yeah, th this is this case of what is sometimes called humane meat. And there's a lot of names for it, the humane, the locavorism. And I think there are a number of issues. The first is, I think, it's just the empirical claim. So there's, an, so there's an empirical claim that says that humane meat, the animals suffer less than those in factory farms. And in general, perhaps that's true. However, it's not that for the most part, animals who are bred as food animals on like mom and pop ranches that aren't in quote factory farms, most of them suffer a lot of practices that we would consider troubling. Like, I don't know, let's just think about pigs, for example. Pigs, no matter where they are raised, pigs often have like their teeth are filed, they have nose rings put in, they are castrated without any anesthesia whatsoever. If you if you provide anesthesia to a male pig, then you can't sell that meat as organic so you have a little pig and besides it's like it doesn't matter like it like why provide an why why introduce anesthesia when you can just do it for free and it and it's just a pig so so empirically so let me talk empirically and then we'll talk philosophically so empirically the claim that the pigs and the cows on the chico state farm live these idyllic lives that's just false I have students who are agriculture, animal science majors, and they tell me, and I have no reason to disbelieve them because I know the practice, they routinely in their classes, they castrate bulls. And how do they do that? They take a pair of, in, in, in reality, here's what it is. They take a pair of scissors and they cut their balls off. That's it. No anesthesia. No, they just cut the balls off. My students do that. And I said to my, I said to my students, do you get any training on this? And they're like, well, that is the training. They just tell us that's how you're going to do it, right? So the first thing I want to do is dispel the myth that quote humane meat is actually 
produced from animals that live this like idyllic life and they're happy and then and then at this as they like to say they just have one bad day and that one bad day is the last day of their lives so Mm -hmm. so empirically that's just false okay but secondly philosophically let's just look at the issue with regard to the notion of speciesism once again so first of all meat is nutrition is nutritionally unnecessary okay the american dietetic association who is the organization that tells us like how much vitamin c we need other when you all those things we think about like how much protein do i need the american dietetic association has published a paper that says that plant-based vegan diets are healthy people in all stages of life can flourish on them infants athletes you can get adequate protein this is all i'm not a nutritionist i'm just repeating what the american dietetic association has said so nutritionally speaking animal products are not requisite there are many vegans on the planet earth who have been vegans for years and they're healthy and they're flourishing and they eat you know well-rounded diet so so now the question is like well why do we need to eat the pig anyway and it looks like the reason we eat the pig primarily is because it tastes good like i like a bacon donut that's why it's it's not (laughs) a nutritional necessity so philosophically then we look at the question is like so we're taking these animals and yeah we're trying to give them you might say like it's better than being in a factory farm they're not in gestation crates for 180 days where they can't turn around and they're not you know uh, they're, they're not they're not they don't suffer as much but they the the thing that people should realize too is is before I get back to this philosophical, the pigs who are raised in humane, quote, humane conditions, they're sent to the same slaughterhouse. There's not like a special humane slaughterhouse. They're sent to the same slaughterhouse. They're corralled in. doesn't matter if you want to talk about Temple Grandin. They're basically corralled in. They're scared. Their throats are slit. They're shot in the head with a captive bolt gun. Chickens are slit without any anesthesia whatsoever. And, and so even if you're raising your backyard chickens, you have to kill them. Now, Let's get to the philosophical issue. Let me let me let me pose a thought experiment. Let me pose a a kind of challenge. If I were to be able to produce human meat for those for whatever reason, I, I I'm not even going to put a judgment on it. There are human beings. Let's just say who, there's a market demand for you know like thigh meat, like uh, an Angelina Jolie thigh steak. Someone wants to buy that now. Let's continue with this thought experiment. Imagine that I could produce through genetic manipulation human beings. I could bring into existence human beings, human children, human babies who will permanently be at the cognitive level of a pig. And I will take those children, if left to their own devices, they will never, ever reach the cognitive capacity of what you and I would call a quote normal adult human. So they're bred specifically in this twisted sci-fi, you know, kind of Twilight Zone example to be to provide food for cannibals, basically. And and I give them the best lives. They're like the kids. They grow up and they have like the best they play, you know, to the best of their cognitive capacities in the same way that pigs do. We let them do whatever they like to do. And then we kill them for food. I want to say if you are consistent and you think that humane meat is okay. And I, I need to hear an argument why humane human meat is not okay in the, in the way that I described it. And I would bet most people would say humane human meat, human meat is not okay. It's kind of dastardly. And I would say, well, the reasons that you see that practice as dastardly are the same reasons as I see humane pig meat as dastardly because pigs want to stay alive. 
pigs are highly comp this is something else that one of my soapboxes is like people say like ah they're just dumb animals but <laughs> think about if you if you think about evolution think about all the extinct species on the planet think about i think there are at last check i think there are like six million I, I i don't know that figure exactly but think about all the species of living things on the planet and i'm talking from like microbes you know amoeba up to you know in this scale of natural i'm giving this picture of like sophistication you know sophistication. <laughs> but but let's just say they're all the way up to human beings carrots grass we're thinking of all the living organisms Pigs are pretty goddamn sophisticated beings. They're socially and cognitively sophisticated. When you look at, when you're looking down from the, from the point of view of humans, and you're going, ah, they're just dumb animals. But in the cosmic scheme of the living beings on Earth, pigs are fucking amazing, right? <laughs> and so, so to think that well, we're just going to raise pigs in an idyllic setting here in Chico on the farm. We're going to treat them well, and then. We're going to shoot them in the head and they're not quite dead. And then we're going to slice their throats and they're going to bleed out upside down on hanging from a chain. And then I'm going to slice them up and, you know, turn their bodies into and commodify and objectify their bodies. What I want to say is that's not even necessary. Like you don't have to do that. You can just eat plants. So, so again, like if you think if a consumer thinks if this consumer goes to the store and they're like, oh, well, this is. This is heritage pork that was raised in a humane way. That, to me, is bad faith. Just come out and say, I don't really care about the life of the pig as much as I care about my own palate and my own my own um, gustatory pleasure. At least don't deal in bad faith. Don't say like, oh, it lived a good life and it had one bad day. No, you took a pig whose lifespan is like mm, 20 years. The pig is 18, to two, 18 months to two years old. And you slaughtered it, you executed it in a grisly, gruesome way so that you can eat bacon. That's what's going on. So if, as long as you're okay with that, <laughs> at first, what I want to say is, because I think things like humane meat, these are marketing terms created by the industry. The, the last thing I want to say about humane meat is this. You can, so by, by 2050, we're going to have nine, 9 billion people on the planet. It is physically impossible to feed 9 billion people with you know current rates of meat consumption you can't there's not enough land it, it would take five planet earths as resources to feed humane pigs and cows to feed humans it it's a it's physically unsustainable so humane meat is actually it's a privilege to be able to eat humane meat because mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm using humane meat in quotes right mm -hmm. because you're like well you know I can afford to go to Whole Foods or I can afford to go to SNS and I can afford to the co-op and buy, spend lots of money on this mm -hmm. and it makes my conscience, I feel better because like the little thing says cage-free eggs and in my mind I think, oh, these little chickens and they're running around. That's not really how it's done. That's not really how it is. The chickens are killed in the end. When, I, when we talk about things like people will say to me as a vegan, they'll go like, well, why can't you drink milk, right? You have the cow. It's a, it's a cow and it's like cow's give milk like all you're doing is pulling the udder and getting milk you're not like harming the cow mm -hmm. but that's not really true what it is is it's an industry where when the cows milk when when they when they when it wanes then they just become hamburger so milk is just future hamburger that's so so to contribute when i when i go and purchase milk as a vegetarian 
And this is, this is partially why I'm a vegan is because I think I can't be in bad faith. I have to realize there's a being who's being held against its will and it's being impregnated because we're, cows are mammals and they have to produce babies to have milk just like humans. So they're being forcibly impregnated and then the milk is being pumped against their will and then when it wanes, they're slaughtered for, for hamburger. And I just feel like there's no way in hell I feel like as a moral as a person who's striving to reduce harm on the planet, I could take that into my body and justify it. fourth question and answer format breaks down a bit but in this this messy section robert starts talking about veganism as a cultural movement and how people are vegan for very different reasons uh, and i think this is an interesting reflection so back to the conversation well i've been a vegan for a long time many years but i noticed recently say since 2010 about about 10 years i've been feeling uncomfortable thinking of myself as a vegan and not because I think that I should not be a vegan, but because veganism, there are many senses. The concept veganism has many senses, and there's some senses that I reject, mm. or there are some senses of veganism that I don't want to associate with. Mm. And so lately I've been writing, you know, in the past few years I've been publishing vegan critique papers, and, you know, I get pushback, people get unhappy with me, but. Part of, my, part of my issue is that veganism in some ways has been transformed into a movement about plant-based food consumption, right? Or mm. in the case of say like, I don't know, Beyonce is a vegan and it's like really healthy and it's cool to be a vegan and it's trendy to be a vegan. And, mm. and I, that doesn't resonate with me because I'm an animal liberationist. I'm an animal justice advocate. Veganism for me is not about food choices mm -hmm. it's not a diet veganism is not a diet veganism is a political stance mm -hmm. veganism is a way that you look at the world say like for example like marxism you know you mm -hmm. you can look at you know you can look at baseball through a, a capitalist lens and you know major league baseball or you can look at it through the marxist lens and see all these class and economic forces and so when i think about non-human animals I look at the world through an animal liberationist's view or an anti-speciesist view, an anti-human supremacy view. And when I look at veganism, I see veganism as, in many ways, as being a consumer movement, right? It's like mm -hmm. we have this capitalist system and the market is supposed to make moral decisions for us. And if enough people like plant-based foods and we can make veggie burgers taste like meat, then veganism will become more popular and less animals will, will suffer. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, fuck that. That is mm -hmm. not what I'm about. I am not about that. I am mm. about abolition of animal oppression. And I am about liberation of animals from conditions of factory farming and, and quote, humane farming and animal experimentation, these kinds of things. So, mm. so my issues with veganism the way i the way i see vegan like when people say to me oh i'm a vegan i like 10 years ago i used to be i used to go like oh i'm a vegan mm -hmm. and now i feel like am i a vegan anymore mm -hmm. because i'm not a vegan in the sense that i think like oh i can just 
let's put it this way. I don't think buying tofu instead of buying meat is going to is going to play a part in animal liberate animal liberation or mm-hmm. maybe a tiny one mm-hmm. now there's there's a whole literature cropping up now with lab grown meat and mm-hmm. and it's 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 radically split the animal rights movement there's a there's a deep divide now between those animal rights people who are pro lab grown meat and those who are anti lab grown meat mm-hmm. and i think there are many arguments pro and against of course the argument for lab-grown meat is that well someday there's going to be no need for animals and lab-grown meat if you want a hamburger it's going to come from an it's not going to come from a sentient being and it's going to be morally mm-hmm. better mm-hmm. but there are interesting arguments on the other side empirically it looks like the companies who are investing in lab-grown meat like tyson and smithfield these like animal produ- animal food producers mm-hmm. they're not investing in lab-grown meat solely because they think there's going to be a shift they're investing because they think it's going to expand the market if you look at places like tyson they used to call themselves like meat producers you know what they call themselves now protein producers Mm. right Mm. so so it looks like what's going to happen is you're going to have a whole bunch of meat statistics prognostications say that you're going to have all this meat and they're going to have this lab grown meat and you're going to have your choice right so it's not going to eliminate it mm. but i think there's an in, there's a, philosophically speaking i think there's an interesting point that people like carol j adams makes she's the author of the sexual politics of meat ecofeminist vegan mm-hmm. and animal rights activist these arguments go like this when you see a being a sentient being as food when you commodify and objectify a sentient being you're ontologizing subjective experiences of these beings you're ontologizing it as food you're putting it in a category that it doesn't belong morally so even if you think about like oh we're going to have lab grown meat it's still what you're what you're saying to the culture is it's okay to ontologize sentient beings as meat but they didn't suffer and so that kind of philosophical view hits mm-hmm. home when you think about lab-grown human meat, right? Mm-hmm. And you might have a repulsion. You might go like, oh, that's disgusting, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think I think it's Miriam Dawkins. She has a paper about like the category of human are, is just not the category of things that, that we eat. It's conceptually not in that category, right? Mm-hmm. right? And animals just are. And I think what Carol Adams would say to something like lab-grown meat or thinking about substituting in like hamburgery looking things is philosophically what we want to do morally is to, is to step back and go like no no let's not even let's not even have no simulacra of that let's not even mm-hmm. go down that road and along these lines what's interesting is there are a number of five-star vegan restaurants that have been popping up around the country mm-hmm. most notably in philadelphia there's a place called veg v it's like edge with a v Mm. and it's all vegan and there's a kind of new thinking out there which is we're going to take plants and we're going to turn them into delicious food Mm -hmm. but we're not we don't need mock meat and we're not going to make faux meat because we don't want meat to be seen as primary right right so i think there is an interesting philosophical issue with regard to veganism and that and that kind of view so anyway that's my right more ranting yeah on the philosophy bites episode i think it was nigel warburton um, asked gary francione like so if you find a deer that's just been recently struck by a car can you eat it and his response is something like well 
I mean, if you find a human, that you know, if you find a human arm on the side of the road and you can tell it's very fresh, then it's weird. <laughs> like, it's not just weird; it's morally wrong to take it home and barbecue it and um, and eat it. Um, and the the same thing should apply to, to animals. to hear like the the quick version of the work you've done legally because i think that work is really interesting and it it reveals something interesting about how our legal system works that there are there are only two categories when it feels like there should be more than just two categories yeah well this is this is another this is where there are some things where philosophy gets it gets so rarefied that you know if you're if you're non-philosophers would scratch their heads and say like wait what's all this fuss about whether or not you know part the part whole problem and tables you know people but i think this is one area where philosophy really can play a part in manifesting public policy and that's with regard to the issue of personhood and what it means to be a person and of course philosophers will know that you know it's a huge literature but most of us Western analytic philosophers will usually go back to John Locke as sort of like he laid the groundwork for our discussions of personhood. But that could be my ignorance. I'm sure there's like some other philosophy that's non-Western that where this same issue has been talked about a lot and that's my ignorance. But mm. thinking about personhood and what it means to be a person, this applies to the case of non-human animals. And the very word person itself, it's so synonymous with human being. Like when the average person or the average human says like hey who's that person over there they mean who's that homo sapiens right that that's what that's what we mean by the term person but philosophically of course we mean something different like we can say like is a fetus a person well a fetus is certainly a human being it's a homo it's a member of the species homo sapiens but it's not clear it's a person right? so we have this issue of personhood that i'm sure andrew you'll probably do an entire show just on that issue mm-hmm. yeah, it's a big issue but but so here's let me tell you quickly about the background of how the legal how this played out in the legal sphere recently, and that is, there's an organ. There is an organization led by Stephen Wise, and it's called the Non-Human Rights Project. And he's been doing this for. I mean, he's been doing. He's a lawyer, and he's been doing this work. He became an animal lawyer after reading Peter Singer's book. But this particular incarnation of his 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 work the non-human rights project i think it started in 2013 and he's been litigating cases in the u.s court system on behalf of non-human animals in which he claims that non-human animals actually are protected by what is called the writ of habeas corpus as persons so he is positing that there exist legally non-human persons so let me just say something quickly about that as a digression so when you think of when i teach this stuff in my class and i say non-human persons that often strikes it's puzzling it's it, it often strikes people as they're confused as they're like what do you mean non-human it's like saying non-human human right but if you understand person as a metaphysical category of say for example with john locke you mean certain cognitive capacities and certain an, an existence of these capacities over time connected by something like memory so there are a lot of sophisticated ideas of what it means to be person and legally personhood has a, actually an ugly history with with in the united states and in britain with regard to slavery right so many of us know about you know the three-fifths compromise and the, that 
that slaves were considered three-fifths of a person. There's an ugly history with this stuff. But it turns out that in the legal system today in the United States, when we're talking about legal standing, when we talk about those entities that can bring grievances into in the court that have legal standing, there are only two categories. There's person and thing. Person and object, right? So, and this is very, for those of you who are familiar with this, this might echo if you're familiar with Kant, right? Kant had the same view. There's two things, persons and things. Now, in the legal system, in the American United States legal system, you're either a person or a thing. That's it. And so the things that are persons in the, in the American legal system are two, humans, homo sapiens, and corporations. Animals are not persons, right? And so Stephen Weiss and his organization, Stephen Weiss and non- uh, non-human rights project, they've been arguing in the following way. So they'll find clients, for example, in the in the case that I was involved in, and I'll talk about that in a moment. They find clients, what they call clients, non-human animal clients, for example, two chimpanzees, Tommy and Kiko, who are kept in these cells in upstate New York in pretty abysmal conditions, especially for a, a chimpanzee. And he will argue that they are being detained illegally. And this illegal detainment, known as a writ of habeas corpus, is a legal precedent that goes back to British common law that says, if you, if you detain someone or if you jail or imprison someone illegally, they have a right to come before the court and petition for redress or to say, I am being held unlawfully. And if you think about it, right, this is a big deal. I mean, in history of human rights, like, you know, under a monarchy, the king would just say, you're going to jail, goodbye, you're in the dungeon, see you later. But to think about in the liberal tradition where I say no individuals matter and we have rights and so I can petition and you put me in jail for you know, unjust reasons. So the non-human rights project, they're appropriating this, this writ of habeas corpus and they're saying these chimpanzees are being held unjustifiably and immorally and illegally and the reason why is they're persons, right? So, so here's where the philosophers come in. So, <laughs> so what happens is there's a film that's made and it's called Unlocking the Cage, and it's a documentary film about this whole project, the Non-Human Rights Project and Stephen Wise. And Stephen Wise is going around North America and Canada showing the documentary and having discussions afterwards. So he goes up to Canada where these two philosophers, Andrew Fenton and Letitia Maynell, they're both philosophers and they actually happen to be uh, partners. And so after the screening, they approach Stephen and they say, you know what? I think that philosophy can help out with this. I think your case about non-human personhood, philosophers can actually contribute to this. So then I receive an email from Andrew, who he contacted a number of animal rights scholars who've written on various aspects of non-human animal ethics and said, Stephen wants, wants to prepare what's called an amicus curiae or an amicus brief, which is a friend of the court brief from a group of philosophers and the brief is going to argue why Tommy and Kiko and non-human animals like Tommy and Kiko in particular and chimpanzees in general are persons. And so I joined the team and here was the strategy. The strategy was this. The strategy was the lower courts in New York had all rejected the petition for habeas corpus. There were three different decisions. Now me, silly me being naive, 
I always thought like, well, judges are really kind of philosophically sophisticated. They're smart. They had to like, <laughs> they had to like take the LSAT test and they know about logic and stuff. <laughs> so I was kind of floored when I read the decisions, the opinions of the just of the judges were just, the reasoning was terrible, right? They were, they were, they were like inconsistent. There were, there was errors all over the place. Like for example, they would say something like this. Well, to be a person means that chimpanzees are not persons because they cannot bear the duties and responsibilities of persons. Well, just stopping for a moment, thinking like, wait, can infants bear the duties and responsibilities of persons? No. Do we imprison them unjust? No. So this was the level of discourse that we were all kind of scratching our heads and going, wow, this is not good. So here's what we did. We looked at all of the decisions, all of the opinions that had been written up to that point on this issue with Tommy and Kiko, and we philosophically dismantled all of the views that the ju judges gave. Mm -hmm. So we basically said, here's what we said. We said, according to all the decisions, there are these three notions of personhood. And on your view, it looks like chimpanzees, you want to claim they don't fit into these notions. And what we argued is this. We said, for every notion of personhood that you have provided in your opinions, you have, one, you have this dilemma. Either A, Tommy and Kiko are persons, or B, some human beings are not persons. Right? So we sort of presented it that way. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and so what happened was that brief, and you know, there's precedent for this brief. There's something called the philosopher's brief that was presented. Uh, I think it was a bunch of philosophers in the 90s with regard to abortion or something like that. Anyway, mm. so we presented this amicus brief. It went to the court and it went finally to the New York State Supreme Court where Justice Fahey wrote an opinion, which initially we on the philosophy team, we, were, we thought was disappointing because he denied the the writ of habeas corpus. But Stephen, the lawyer, said, this is a monumental day in animal rights legal history. And why? And he, and he, we, we had a, you know, a Skype phone call, a group phone call, and, and he explained, the judge said things in his decision that no judge has ever said in the history of, of, uh, of U.S. court. And that is, he, the judge said, look, the question of chimpanzees being persons it's an issue that I, Judge Fahey, I can't make that decision. But we, we are facing having to make this decision about chimpanzees. And here's what he said. He said, I don't know, me as little Judge Fahey here in New York Supreme Court, I don't know if chimpanzees are persons. But what I do know is they're not things. Hmm. They're definitely not things. Hmm. So we saw this after speaking to lawyer, we saw this as, you know, a major victory in the history of this kind of challenge and then from that amicus brief came a book that there i think there's a dozen of us who were authors called chimpanzee rights which was put out on Rutledge. it's at routledge it's a it's a small volume it's only about 115 20 pages but it basically what we're hoping that this book does is lay the foundations or the philosophical groundwork for future legislation or future litigation on non-human animal personhood and so in this book this is sort of like the handbook is like, when you're going to argue for non-human personhood, here's the way to argue. Here are all the bad arguments. You want to avoid those. And here are the good arguments. Hmm. So that's how, in my life, philosophy intersected with the legal system in a way that I never thought I would because I, I thought, well, there's no way all this highfalutin animal rights stuff is going to actually 
you know, have an effect, but it, it seems to. So now there's a new case and it's in Connecticut and it has to do with three elephants and we're waiting to hear back if the court is going to hear the case. Uh, it's going to be in New York. So there's a lot of legal stuff, but mm-hmm. the point the point of the matter is that it looks like non-human personhood, like that train has already left the station. It's a matter of time. The first thing that's going to happen is non-human animals are not going to be considered things. And in Europe, they have some countries have a category called sentient. So you have person, sentient, being, and then thing. So there's some expansion, and that's going to happen in the United States. But eventually, maybe, chimpanzees will be considered persons. And if you're interested in what kind of argument, then you can just check out the book called Chimpanzee Rights. Uh-huh. Yeah. You'll find out the answers. Yeah. So, yeah, it's... A- seems pretty clear that if you only have two options, persons and things, it seems like a lot of things are persons. Yes. You know, you can't maintain a really restrictive idea of what a person is if, you, if the other option is things. Right. <laughs> like, like a chair and a chimpanzee are the same thing. Yeah. Something's wildly Same implausible. legal category. Yeah. yeah, right. Good. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is there's a lot of, it's, it's, so it's really tempting to call it the animal rights movement. And there's a lot of reason why you might want to call it the animal rights movement. A lot of people are really skeptical of the idea that animals have rights. I'm actually really skeptical of the idea of rights as a moral category to begin with. But, um, you know, it's a perfectly good political category, but as a moral category, I'm, you know, whatever. So there are some reasons that I can rehearse on why you might think that animals don't have rights. I'm curious, how how do you think about this? Do you think they do have rights or do you think, ah, we can talk about them having rights, but really sort of the, the deep philosophical truth is rights are the wrong category and we should be talking about welfare and interests. And kind of yeah, I think I agree with what that last thing that you said. I think that when you think about rights, first of all, even the notion of a moral right is, and there are many, you can, you know, there's many ways to think about this. I think David DeGrazia, who is an animal rights philosopher, he has a nice notion that says, it basically, it's it's a sketch. It's sort of like a moral right is, it's it's like, it has kind of three, three parts to it. It's a moral claim that protects interests of individuals, and these interests cannot usually be trumped by claims about the general welfare. So it's basically you have these individuals and they have legitimate claims, moral claims on agents that say that agents have to respect their interests in a certain way. And those interests can't be trumped by pure numbers, right? So this is where you have, this is why Peter Singer, for example, does not like you were just saying, Andrew, Peter Singer does not think that rights is a you know, a moral category. It's, it really comes down to, you know, things like capacities and suffering and welfare and stuff like this. So I do think that the category of moral rights or animal rights per se, philosophically is, is troubling, but it's not because so much for me, it's not because it's animal, just like rights, like human rights in the, philos- in the strictly philosophical sense, that's philosophically problematic as well. Now, I don't want to sit here on this podcast and say, I don't believe in human rights because that, that's, not, that, that's not what I'm saying. I do believe in human rights, as you mentioned, like human legal rights and human, and, and I do think that there are moral classifications that are legitimate with regard to the treatment of human and non-human animals. Mm. But animal rights is colloquially, it is just a catch-all for, you know, like 
anyone who thinks that animals should not, they should not be violated in certain ways and they shouldn't be treated in certain ways. So in the popular culture, Peter Singer and Tom Reagan, who are both giants of the animal quote rights movement, they're just called animal rights. Like everyone's like, oh, Peter Singer is an animal rights guy. Whereas Peter Singer is not actually an animal rights person. He's a utilitarian. But so where I, yeah, so I come down on, I'm, I'm skeptical of rights, the philosophical notion of rights. Though I do think, I don't think it's, I, I think there's something to it. I, I, it's not something that I think is totally vacuous and empty. I do think there is something to say. Like Tom Reagan, he has an argument that says something like this. He's like, if you are what he calls the subject of a life, if you are a, a being as we might say, you know, philosophically say like you experience qualia or something. There is a thing that it's like to be you say like (laughs) a rock versus a kitten. Like, so there's something it's like to be a kitten that it isn't to be a rock. What Reagan wants to say is if there's something it's like to be you, then you are what he calls a subject of a life. You have subjective experiences. You have interests, however basic they might be, however sophisticated or unsophisticated. And if you have, if you possess those, those, those capacities, and you are a subject of a life, then that those properties, they have a certain kind of what he calls inherent value that inherent value that is doesn't exist in like a rock. So he's trying to make this in, intuitive distinction where he's going to go, there's something inherently valuable in the universe where, where sentience and consciousness and self-awareness, when these things arise, it's, it's something that has value, a certain kind of inherent value. And then he, if you, so if you buy that, then he's going to say, well, that having, having inherent value, that gives you this kind of protection. So we can't get together like 30 people can't get together and 29 of them go, Hey, that one person there, they have some kind of serum in their blood. And so we're just going to kill them. So the 29 of us can survive this disease, right? Reagan wants to say, no, you can't do it. No matter how many people are going to die, that person has this inherent right to his or her own life. Hmm. And so, so when I hear that argument, I think, well, there's something intuitively appealing about it. Mm. Of course, this for me, I, I shouldn't say of course, for me, the stickier area is like, wait, so what's this move from being a subject to a life to inherent value? That's the, that's the point where I'm like, huh, scratch my head. And I'm like, uh, I don't know if there's a lot of philosophical uh, ground there, mm. um, but I don't want to dismiss it. I want to go, like if someone could give me a really good argument for that connection, yeah. then I would say, oh yeah, there's more substantial stuff to right. rights. Right. I think anyone yeah. who even critiques human rights philosophically has that same problem. Like, where where do you get from being human that gives you inherent value? Where is that? What's that connection? So, Paul, have you read Paul Taylor's? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. I would think of him as may, maybe one of the most sophisticated attempts to like yeah. carve out space for rights and Kantian categories when it comes to non-human subjects and things like yeah. that. But, um, and uh, you know, Christine Korsgaard just published a book. Oh, really? An animal quote rights book. She's oh. an she's an animal rights person. Oh, okay. She's a vegan, and she's also a Kantian. Yeah. And Kant is, you know, f- famous or infamous, depending on your view, for yeah. totally dismissing animals as having rights. Right. They're not persons. You have to be a person. So Korsgaard just published this year. She just published a book where she argues that animals, and I haven't read the book, so I'm just going right. by reviews. But according to Korsgaard, she has. She has found a way to interpret Kant such that non-human animals are no longer in this like means. They actually are ends in themselves. Right. So 
So right. there's some work being done on that. Interesting. I, it's not something that I haven't read. I should. Yeah. It's something I should read, but it's just not something I'm. Just, yeah. I'm not a super rights person, so I tend right. to go like uh, I have other stuff I need to read. You know, Course Guard's a pretty original thinker, so yeah. I, I I wouldn't want to trivialize her work in any way by saying she's just reinterpreting Kant. But I think yeah. I think anyone who's going to use a Kantian framework to argue for animal rights has to grapple with the fact that it's it's clear that Kant didn't think it. So, yeah. so there's going to be some kind of way to massage that stark contrast mm-hmm. to make it pal- palpable to animal rights folk. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'd be curious how you think about moral status because it's something that my students kind of struggle with. We, we have tended to read, I don't think I'm going to do it again. I think I'm going to use a different paper, but it does get the discussion going as singers. I think it's called speciesism and moral mm-hmm. status. Yeah. Or something. yeah it's, and the students tend to think very black and white about it of like, you know, oh, he's saying like, we don't have to care about things that are stupid. Uh, like it's all about um cognitive ability and also if you don't have very much cognitive ability then you don't matter at all and it's like no well he's he's saying everything has moral status but there there's still a a continuum or a um there's a set of priorities in terms of who has moral priority or something like that. right right yeah so i think moral status if you think about when i teach moral status Here's what I talk about. And, and and there are gradations. And my mentor and my friend and mentor, Lori Gruen, she writes pretty clearly on this in her book, Ethics and Animals. So you can think about moral status. I break moral status down following Lori Gruen into what she calls moral considerability versus moral significance. Mm. So here's one way to, th- and there's many ways to think of it. And if you're interested, I actually have, I don't think it got, there's a the, the Routledge, companion to environmental ethics okay i wrote the entry for animal the moral status of, of animals and oh, cool. and in there i flesh out or i tofu out all the <laughs> i flesh out this whole thing but in a nutshell for our purposes you can think of it like this here's a way i teach it to my students it's like there's this club and to get into the club so okay so you have this club and to get into the club you you there's something so the question is, what gets you into this club of what, of what makes things such that I have to consider their interests when I'm making decisions? So, you know, the, I, I use this example all the time. I'm, you know, I'm walking home. Peter Singer talks about this. I'm walking on a little trail and I see, I kick a rock, I'm kicking a rock down the road. And then I come to like a cat, like a little kitten or something. And I, I start kicking the kitten down the road. <laughs> and now you're going to go, wait a second, hold on a second. What the hell are you doing? And I'll say, well, what's the difference? I'm just kicking a rock. I'm kicking a kitten. And you're going to say, no, it's, it's wrong to kick. It's morally wrong. You're, you're, you're doing something wrong. You know, you would tell your kid, don't kick the kitten, yeah, but it's okay to kick the rock. Now, the question is, well, what's the difference between those two things? And you say, well, one is in this club of things that we care about. Like one, there's a, there's a set of objects and a lot of people all over the planet have different objects that get into the club, but there's, each of us has a club and the club is such that if you get in that club, then when I'm in a moral decision-making about treatment of you, I have to actually consider your interests. So when I kick the rock, I can just go, oh, whatever, you know, I'm just kicking a rock. It's fun, but I can't just kick the kitten. I have to actually consider the kitten as opposed to the rock. So the kitten in that case, in my case, the kitten is in the club. I'm like, that kitten gets in the club. So that club of things that I have to consider whose interests I have to consider when I'm in the midst of moral decision-making. And in this case, like kicking an object down the path in the case of a kitten becomes a moral decision. 
So when I make that decision, when I'm doing that decision making, I just go, oh, these things are in the club and these things aren't. So now that who's whatever objects get in the club, objects, and I mean that in like including subjects and objects, but so whatever things get in the club, those things are morally considerable to me. In other words, I need to consider their interests when I'm making decisions. However, once you get into the club, that doesn't mean everyone who's in the club has equal moral value. Now I'm, so I've gotten in the door of the club and now I'm like, so does that mean that, you know, the mouse and the the human child are the same morally? Like the treatment of them is the same? And of course, many people, including, you know, Peter Singer and Animal is gonna go like, no, there's, they're actually, they have different moral value. Now, why they have different moral value, that's where we get into this questions of, of theory and utilitarianism or, or, or Kantianism or, or uh, divine command theory. There's all these different reasons we could say that there's a difference in value between the mouse and the child. But that difference in value is what I would call and what Gruen calls moral significance. So to parse this out, we say, look, the first thing we want to decide is who gets in the club. And for some people, they go like, only humans get in the club. That's any non-human, I can just do whatever the hell I want to do. I could throw chickens out the window. I can shoot any animals. So if you're, in the, if you're human, you're in the club. So being human, it's like necessary. All and only humans are in the club. That's an extreme position that not many people probably have, but there are people who have that. Mm-hmm. Some might say like Descartes perhaps may have right. thought that only humans, all and only humans are in the club. Yeah. Everything else is just a... Is the uh, beta machine the, the the mechanism? So, but but then you might say like, no, no, I think that I think that the things that are morally considerable, the things that I'm saying are in the club that have moral status. They have moral status, but they might have differing moral value. So now, when I'm going to adjudicate between how I treat the, the mouse versus the young child. Now I have to, other things come into play that's, that are going to play on the value. But I'm, I'm, at no time do I deny that the mouse has moral status. Hmm. The way some people put this is to say, well, moral status comes in degrees. And I'm okay with that. Okay, if you want to put it that way, that's fine. I think it confuses students. So when I make hmm. this separation between moral considerability, getting in the club, and moral significance, adjudicating differences once you're in the club, then we can get a bead on what I mean by animals having moral status. Mm -hmm. What I want to say is non-human animals are in the club. Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean that the mouse and the child have equal moral value? And I want to say, in some cases, they depends on what you're talking about. That, that's where that's where the that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the sparks fly. It's like, <laughs> what are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Is it is it merely like I'm going to do an experiment to see whether this this oven cleaning product burns eyelids? So I'm just going to pick a mouse and do it to the mouse. I want to go. Well, hold on a second. You, you just that's speciesist. You can't you can't do that. You just violated this speciesist kind of moral system, and so you can't do that. But if you said well, one of these creatures, say someone like Peter Singer would say, one of these beings has to be sacrificed for a for a greater utility. Now you're going to do this and you're going to weigh and go like, well, the child, you can you can you can imagine like all the utilitarian reasons. Like the child might have hopes and dreams about the future that it's questionable that the mouse has, and those are morally relevant. Or the mm-hmm. child might have a large group of family who are going to also suffer, and the mouse might so. So now you're in a different territory, but notice you're never at any point are you saying, 
oh, we can just use the mouse because it doesn't have moral status or mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. because it's a mouse. Right. So when I think about moral status, I like to think about it in those terms because mm-hmm. the difference between the, the considerability and the, and the significance helps me and helps students think about like, oh, part of what we're doing in this animal rights project, this class I'm taking is we're trying to figure out who's in the club. Mm-hmm. And then part of what we're doing in the class is figuring out who has higher moral value and why. Mm-hmm. And so that's right. how I'd like to... Who, who gets in the VIP section? Who gets in the, who gets in the <laughs> VIP section? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>